We love a real God who sent His real Son to the earth to really die for us. And He really resurrected from the dead. And all that we talk about and dream of, especially when it comes to a real kingdom and a real return of Jesus, is all authentic and actual and genuine and true. This is not made up stuff. None of us here are bright enough to come up with this kind of thing. (laughs) And so I, I remind you of that as we open up here, Isaiah 58, because that's what God is interested in. He's interested in what's real and what's authentic. That's all He's looking for from any of us is that we get real with Him. He says in verse 1, Cry loudly and do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to My people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek Me day by day and delight to know My ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. They ask Me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. Why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? Behold, on the day of your fast you find your desire, you drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a fist, a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry, and to bring the homeless poor into the house, and when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light will break out like the dawn, and your recovery will speedily spring forth, and your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry, and He will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, And if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness, your gloom will become like midday, and the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones. And you'll be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and honor it desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, Then you will take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Jesus, thank you so much ahead of time for what you're about to teach us. And thank you for your word this morning. And I do pray, as we've already prayed, that you would strip away the veneer of false religion and help us to just be real with you. Only your spirit can do this. When we work at it on our own, Lord, we tend to build up and put on masks. So Holy Spirit of the living God, make us real today. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Isaiah 58 
begins the last section of the book of Isaiah. We are down now to the last nine of 66 chapters. Which, you Bible students, remember the Bible has 66 chapters. Interesting. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. There are 39 chapters in Isaiah leading up to covering all sorts of ground and then starting with the last 27, he takes a new direction. Interesting how that works. We're in the last nine of the last 27 chapters, the last third. And as we go into these chapters, you need to understand, Isaiah already has spoken multiple times about the coming kingdom of God. Now it becomes his main focus. We're going up. We're ascending with Isaiah in these chapters to the coming of the glorious kingdom, like a glorious mountain. And we talked about this Wednesday night. I gave kind of an illustration. I want to use it again this morning because it's so powerful for us to see it this way. There are two great mountain peaks in Bible prophecy. Just two. Lots of different Bible prophecies, but two primary peaks that we need to be aware of. And the the first one is behind us now. It's called Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah, that great peak of biblical prophecy. Genesis 22, verse 2, God said to Abraham, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And so Abraham did that. Went up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac in obedience to the Lord. If you know the story, you know God stopped Abraham's hand from committing that sacrifice, but took him right to the edge of his faith. Abraham absolutely believing that if he were to kill and sacrifice his son, God would resurrect Isaac. Abraham had resurrection in his brain. I think most people do, by the way. As the Bible tells us, God has set eternity within our hearts. We have a sense that there's far more than what's happening right now. There's more than this life. But that's not why Moriah is a mighty mountain. It wasn't the Abraham story. 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1 says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. So the first temple and the second temple were built there. The Temple Mount today sits on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. But that's not why Mount Moriah is that great peak of prophecy either. In fact, if you were to see Mount Moriah today, some of you have been there, you know it's more of a ridge than a mountain. Cutting through the central part of of Jerusalem, there's a valley on either side of it, and it's almost hard to see it as a mountain. You're up so high in Jerusalem anyway. But it's this ridge cutting through. So what is it that makes Mount Moriah so phenomenal? It's what took place there when Jesus was crucified at Calvary. On Mount Moriah, the crucifixion took place. The great peak of Bible prophecy. As we talked about the last couple of weeks, Isaiah 53 the sacrifice of the suffering servant that would take place on Mount Moriah. And you can imagine, if you will, Isaiah prophesying 700 years ahead of time. He's looking down the line and it's as though he sees this mountain. This mountain of of the pinnacle of his prophecy. This sacrifice of Messiah. And even himself, Isaiah, not fully understanding or comprehending what it is that he's saying here, but he says it because God tells him to. But he looks ahead, he sees that mighty peak of prophecy. We called it the pinnacle of all prophecy, the crucifixion of Jesus. But if you were standing with Isaiah, and he talks about this Mount Moriah, you also would hear him talk about another mountain. A peak that's on beyond. If you're looking, you can see it as though you were standing behind Mount Baker, You're looking at Baker, but you're in a direct line with Mount Rainier just down beyond it. And the two almost look like they could be connected if you're looking 
in a parallel. And so we look ahead and Isaiah now starts to talk about the second great peak, Mount Zion. Mount Zion to Isaiah represents the coming kingdom of God. He often connects Zion to the kingdom. We're going up to Zion. Let us go up to the house of the Lord at Mount Zion, he says. And so we head in that direction, that second great majestic peak. Isaiah 59 verse 20, he says, A Redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. Zechariah the prophet says in chapter 8 verse 3, Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Mighty Mount Zion. Mighty Mount Moriah. Back behind us now. Mighty Mount Zion out in front of us. But what Isaiah couldn't see and what nobody could have seen from that perspective was the length of the valley in between. That's where we are. We're in the valley. The valley of this age. Some have called it the church age. Some have called it the dispensation of grace. It is this time between Mount Moriah and Mount Zion where God says, anybody can come. Anybody can come to me and be saved. Anyone can go to this great kingdom that is coming if you will believe in Jesus. If you will just enter into a relationship with Jesus. And so we're in the valley. Walking the valley. But gang, listen. The way is getting steep. We're very close. And I absolutely believe this with every fiber of my being that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is that close that it's just around the corner. Because we're already going up. We're already headed up to Jerusalem, up to the kingdom, up to the coming age. At any time, Jesus may come. And this is not false advertising. And this is not Pastor Rick getting all emotional. This is just real. I'm telling you the truth. We're that far from the coming of the kingdom. And someone might say, well, Rick, it's been 2,700 years since Isaiah prophesied about this coming kingdom, right? (laughs) What makes you think it's so suddenly imminent? Because it's been 2,700 years since Isaiah (laughs) prophesied this. You know, the question answers itself. You think we might be closer? Closer, obviously, than Isaiah was. Closer than Paul was, who wrote in Romans 13, verse 11, Know the time. It's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. And if it was nearer to Paul when he believed, how much nearer is it to us 2,000 years later? Besides the fact, when we read the signs of the times... And there is no hocus-pocus in this. Just listen to how Jesus described the end of the end, those last days leading up to the imminence of His coming. He says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And truly, for 2,000 years, Jerusalem has been trampled underfoot by Gentiles trying to own it for themselves. It still is astounding to me that though Jerusalem is considered by the Jewish people in Israel their capital, they still don't have control of the Temple Mount. Their Temple Mount. It's under Islamic control. It's under Palestinian control. How does that work? I won't get all political. We'll save that maybe for next week. But Jesus said, He said there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among the nations. Is there dismay among the nations today? We keep talking about this. There is dismay in our nation unlike any time in my life. He goes on, he says, 
People will be perplexed at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Have we seen that? The tsunami, Katrina, on and on it goes. Bizarre things happening that, that, that haven't happened before, or at least not to the extent that they're happening now. It says, men fainting from fear. And I'll tell you what, fear is gripping people in this world. I forget who I was talking to about a week ago, but we were just saying how typically at the turn of the century, maybe it was Wednesday night we were talking about this, typically at the turn of the century every time there's some fear that stirs up as people are going into the new century, oh no, what's going to happen? But it dissipates. About a decade in, it's gone. People are more fearful now in 2012 than we were 12 years ago. We're more stirred up, we're more concerned, we're looking over our shoulder, we're wondering what's going to happen next, waiting for the next shoe to drop. Men fainting from fear. Jesus said, in the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, Jesus says, straighten up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. What are you talking about? When they begin to take place. That is, when there is dismay among the nations. When there is perplexity at the roaring of the seas and and at the ocean waves and men fainting from fear. As these things begin to happen, look up. Straighten up. Your redemption is drawing near, Jesus said. In Revelation 22.20, Jesus said, Yes, I am coming quickly. And John said, and we should learn to say with Him, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Bring it on. Come and get us, Lord. We're ready. We're alert. We're awake. Because we're in overtime. And I know when I say that, there are people who say, Rick, you've got to be responsible with your teaching and you don't want to be freaking anybody out. Hey, I haven't put a time on this, have I? Did I say tomorrow afternoon at 3 o'clock we're going up? <laughs> Boy, wouldn't that be cool. <laughs> of course, knowing the Lord, He'd do it at 2.45. <laughs> Rick was wrong. <laughs> Gang, the, the concerns of Isaiah 58 are perfectly suited to where we are right now. To the church in the valley, but to the church at the far end of the valley, looking up at the looming mountain before us. Already our path, our steps are moving upward. And isn't it interesting how much resistance there is in the world? Almost like we're salmon swimming upstream. That wickedness, that evil, that, that dark things are pushing hard against the church moving forward. It's because of where we are in this age, in this time. And the question that keeps coming up is, how do we deal with this? How do we live? What is my life supposed to look like, Lord? How am I supposed to be in these days? And Isaiah 58, he answers the question. Historically, he's talking to Judah. He's giving them a heads up. In fact, this is prior to them going into Babylonian captivity. And God is speaking to them and saying, you've got to get this right. You're misunderstanding some things here. And I want you to see clearly, but the application for us is astounding, as I think you'll see this morning. The teaching here desires what God wants personally with each of us and with all of us. What's that? He calls us to reject what I would call religious RPGs. You gamers out there know an RPG is a role-playing game. And God says, knock it off. Enough with the role playing. Enough with the games. Enough with the facade, with the veneer. I read this quote Wednesday night. 
Ironside said, prophecy ought to make people examine themselves before God. And the truth of the coming of the Lord for His church surely ought to make every Christian heart ask, am I so living that I would be glad and welcome to, glad and ready to welcome the Lord Jesus at any moment? I love the way he phrases that. Am I so living that I would be glad and ready to welcome the Lord at any moment. If He knocked on my door this afternoon, then I would be thrilled to see Him as opposed to, Oh, hang on, i got to clean up. You know? It's a very positive way to look at it. Not am I living in so much fear and guilt that if He came, I'd be, I'd be shamed. But am I ready? It's a very simple question you can ask yourself at any point to, to maybe measure how real your relationship with Jesus is. Am I ready? Am I ready to be with Him? If you can't answer that in the affirmative, then you really need to pay attention to what God has to tell you this morning. Isaiah begins the final stretch of this prophecy, asking the question, am I living with the majestic Mount Zion in view? He takes two examples of very Jewish things that had become, and even in Isaiah's day, had become very religious. The two examples are fasting and the Sabbath. Fasting and the Sabbath. And the reason he pulls these out, I'm convinced, I'll tell you part of the reason in a few minutes, but one of the reasons is simply they're so common and so well known among the Jewish people, and they were so misunderstood. They were so misused. Fasting and the Sabbath, and he begins with fasting. Verse 1, cry loudly, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, the word there is shofar, and declare to my people their transgression, and to the house of Jacob their sins. Shofar, not show good is what he's saying here. Verse 2, Yet they seek Me day by day and delight to know My ways. What? As a nation that's done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God, they ask Me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. That doesn't make sense. In verse 1, he's calling out their sin. In verse 2, he's saying, Yet they're, they're so religious. They delight to be near Me. In fact, what he's saying is they appear to be doing all the right things. Listen, in the first verse, God commands Isaiah to cry with a full throat. That's what that means. Cry aloud. A full-throated yell. To blast like the sounding of the ram's horn, the shofar. In the second verse, however, you can almost hear the latest hit worship song from Jesus' culture as it flows out of the temple. Everything's good. We look right. We're singing the songs. We're into it, Lord. God sounds the alarm against role-playing. In verse 2, he says they seem to be doing all the right things. They're seeking the Lord every day. They're delighting in Bible study. They're keeping all the right rules. They're crying out for a just America, a just Judah. (laughs) And they're delighting in the nearness of God. To delight in the nearness of God. Isn't that a good thing, Lord? Well, delighting in the nearness of God, am I just into the tingly feeling I get in the midst of worship? Am I, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.5, holding to a form of godliness, although I have denied its power? The Lord has Isaiah put the people on alert. Sound the wake-up call against pretentious, self-deceptive, role-playing religion. And I read this and I thought, wow, would God see us that way today? Would he see, do we see ourselves as verse 2 while God is calling out verse 1? He's calling out, sound the alarm against your transgression. And we're sitting here going, yeah, but we're grooving, Jesus. we got all the right music and all the right words. And we're doing the right things, aren't we? 
And we're anti this and opposed to that. And we're holding up our picket signs here and there. And we are, aren't we doing? And God says, sound the alarm. Sound the alarm. I think he already has said this to the church today. Ephesians 5.14, for this reason, Paul writes, it says, awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. How have you, how have I, this last week, walked in an unwise way? Was there something I chose to do that was foolish? Was there some behavior... (laughs) that I exemplified and one comes to mind for me that I am not going to (laughs) share. Is there something I've done that just reveals, wow, I got a little out of step there, Lord. Some people in the church are sound asleep. In fact, there are entire aspects of the church and I I always struggle with this. I struggle with, with talking negatively about the church because I'm the church. You're the church. And I love the church and I love Jesus' whole design and His whole plan and yet there are there are large aspects of the church today that are sound asleep. And as a matter of fact, got to give this warning at the base of Mount Zion, before we get to the kingdom, the Bible details a seven-year cavern, a pit, if you will, a tribulation. And there are aspects of the church right now that are sound asleep, and when Jesus calls His true church home, there will be large portions of those who even think themselves Christian who are going to go into tribulation. Who will not be called up when Jesus calls. What are you talking about, Rick? In the book of Revelation, and keep your finger here and turn back over there, Revelation chapter 2. Jesus sent seven letters to seven different churches. These seven churches were specific churches in Asia Minor in the days that John wrote, the late 90s A.D., And so these seven letters would go out to these seven different churches. They went out to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, Thyatira. They went out to Sardis and Laodicea and Philadelphia. So they were actual historical churches who received these letters of warning from the Lord. But the letters are too big to simply be historical. And I encourage you, I don't have time to really get into it deep this morning, but just to say, each one of these churches represents a segment of the church across church history. And we studied that in our Revelation study. It's on the website. I encourage you to go back and just listen to the study through chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation. It will give you a perspective on where the church is in the world today. It's pretty stunning what the Word has to tell us. But there are four churches that Jesus spoke of across all of church history. Four churches still in existence today. Four churches still represented on planet Earth. And four churches that are going to face either being pulled out or going into Tribulation. Try and stay with me on this. Chapter 2, verse 19. The first church is a warning to the church at Thyatira. And Jesus says, I know your deeds and your love and your faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Who's Jezebel? <laughs> you got to go listen to the Revelation study to find out. He says, Behold, verse 22, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. The great tribulation. There's an aspect of this church represented by, by Thyatira. I'll give you a hint about Thyatira. 
The name Thyatira of the town means continual sacrifice. The church of the continual sacrifice. What does that mean, Rick? I'll let you just think about that. And again, you can go and study that if you want to know more. But he, he gives this warning. Thyatira, you're doing all these great things. You're impressive in your love and your service and your deeds. But here's the problem. There's a veneer. There's a falseness. There's a religious spirit about what you're doing. And it's not what I'm looking for. And so Thyatira is put on notice. Secondly, he puts Sardis on notice. Over in chapter 3. He says in verse 1, about halfway through verse 1, I know your deeds. Sardis. Sardis means remnant. He says, I know your deeds. That you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. The word name in verse 1 is interesting. It's onoma. It's where we get our word denomination. Rick, are you saying all the denominations are dead? No, I'm not. Not all of them. Many are. That's why people are leaving denominational churches in droves because they are clinging to a tradition and they're asleep in the light. And there's a warning right here against that mentality. And it's a danger. Sardis, wake up. Notice what he says in verse 3. Remember what you've received and what you've heard. Keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief. Oh, oh yeah, I know that. I, the thief in the night, right? Guess what? To the true, true church, Jesus will not come as a thief in the night. To the true church. Because the true church is not going to be surprised and caught off guard. The true church is looking for Him to come. The true church is ready for Him to come. He knocks on the door of the true church. He says, open up, let's go. The church that sees Jesus as the thief in the night is the church that's unprepared, that's not looking, that is not ready. Remember what a thief does. He sneaks in and he takes something. And you don't know until it's gone. And in the same way, Jesus is going to come in and He's going to take something. He's going to take His true church. He's going to take true believers with Him. And so many are not even going to know until they're gone. So Sardis is put on notice. He puts Laodicea on notice. Verse 15 of chapter 3, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Laodicea means the people's rights. The people's rights. The people's church. It's the church that says whatever and whoever and however. It's cool. It's cool. Just come worship with us. Your morality is unimportant. Your value system doesn't matter. Do you align with Scripture or not? No big deal. Right? It's that universalist perspective. And God says, Jesus says, I spit that out. It's disgusting to me. It's like lukewarm milk. It's disgusting. It's gross. A global church gang, a global church is going to rise in this time of tribulation, in this cavernous pit. When the world goes through and experiences the wrath of God, a global church is going to rise and it's going to spread all over the, all over the entire world when all those Bible-believing, intolerant, absolutist, Jesus-only Christians are finally out of the way. Then the true global church. And they will go through tribulation. But listen. Jesus made a fantastic promise to the church at Philadelphia back in verse 10. He said, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly, or literally suddenly, 
Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. And he is talking about the true church, the raptured church. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52, where Paul describes the church that just caught up in the twinkling of an eye. The true church. Rick, how do I know if I'm part of the true church? I can see it in a few of your eyes. I don't want to be in this bar by myself. (laughs) How do I know that I'm going to go? Ask yourself. Ironside's question, am I so living that I would be glad and ready to welcome the Lord Jesus at any moment? Are you? If so, you're good to go. If not, wake up. Wake up. God loves you too much to let you slumber and miss what He is about to do. The role-playing church, the global church of global apostasy in the tribulation, it's already in existence today. There are already examples of it happening all around us. We will not be here at the bridge. We will not be part of that. So how do we avoid it? Back to Isaiah 58. One of the signs of role-playing religion is that nagging sense that all the pretentious personal spirituality that we project, it's not working. It's just not working. I'm trying stuff. It's not working. Notice the questions. Verse 3, Why have we fasted and you do not see? And we've humbled ourselves and you do not notice. We're trying stuff. We're doing things. We're keeping religious requirements. How come there's no response? How come there's no reaction? The people realize it themselves. Judah at that time saying, something's not right. Because we're fasting and it's not working. We're keeping Sabbath and something's missing here. They're so deluded in their own hypocrisy, they can't figure out what it is they're missing. You want to know what they were missing? What we desperately need? What, what is the core of our entire lives if we're followers of Jesus? It's very simple. It's loving Him. All they had to do in Judah in that day was go back to what is called the Shema, the Hero Israel. Moses said it very clearly in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. God said, let's get down to the heart. Let's be real with each other. No pretense, no games. Let's just be heart to heart. Love me with all your heart. But what happened is man exchanged that call for relationship for a manual of right procedure. In Judaism, it's called Talmud. The Talmud is a manual of right procedure. The Talmud is a collection of rabbinical commentary on Torah, on the Hebrew Scriptures. And what's amazing to me today is that more Jews and Jewish leaders and rabbis spend their time in Talmud than they do in Torah. That is, paying attention to the words of man about the Word of God rather than the Word of God spoken by God. And I'm so thankful that none of us do that. You know? And I brought this up before. It's the reading the books of, of pastors and, and commentators and, and men about God's Word. Hey, there's a great new book. Let's, let's take this one and let's study it. How about just studying this one? Talmud got in the way because it became procedural and it became religious. 
Luxbazen himself, I, I've told you before, Jewish, says it deals with all the minutia of proper religious behavior and procedures and rites affecting the daily life of the good Jew from morning till evening and cradle to the grave. However, it did little to change the hearts of men. Why is it that all these great devotional books never seem to stick? Because the writings of man cannot change a heart. The writing of God does not come back to him empty and does change our hearts. God's Spirit takes hold of God's Word and wraps it and sees it and grows it. And we talked about that last week in Isaiah 55. That His Word does not come back to Him empty. And so along comes Jesus. And you know what He says? They say, Jesus, what's the important commandment? Take us to the policy manual. What do we need to do? And Jesus says, you know what you need to do? You need to go back to the Shema. He says... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. See, the Lord agrees. Yeah. I think that's a plane. doesn't matter. So the Navy agrees. This is the great and foremost commandment. And then Jesus follows it up. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, the entire law and the prophet hang. Love God, love people, and you got the law. That would save an awful lot of Talmudic study. (laughs) So with concern for where all this was heading, God compassionately sounds the alarm. And once He's gotten the people's attention, second thing He does, God shoots down the appearance of righteousness. He shoots down the appearance of righteousness. He continues in verse 3, Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire, and drive hard all your workers. Behold, you fast for contention and strife, and you strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed, and for spreading out sackcloth as ashes on a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? Did you know you cannot find a single command to fast in the Torah? In the Jewish law, there is no fasting command. There's example. God obviously approves of the idea of fasting, denying yourself food so that you can focus more on Him spiritually. Moses practiced fasting. Joshua most likely did. Of course, we know Jesus did when He went into the wilderness fasting. So we're not saying fasting is a bad thing, but it is absolutely a misunderstood thing. God said to the prophet, or through the prophet Joel, chapter two, verse twelve. Return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And rend your heart, not your garments. It's not the outward physical show of the fast that's important to me, guys. It's the heart. It's why Jesus said when you fast, dress yourself up. Shower, clean up, anoint yourself, and then go about your business so that nobody knows on the outside what's going on on the inside. Only you and God know. Jesus said, keep it real. Don't play games. No facades, no veneers. But someone missed the heart of the reason for fasting. And so rabbinical scholars come along and they take the religious concept and they ran with it. And so Talmud Talmud describes all manner of ritualistic and pietistic fasting. Ways to go about it. What it's supposed to look like. And the, the Pharisees in Jesus' day said, I fast twice a week. Not like these sinners. And they would go around with their heads hung and their eyes darkened and their hair messy. You know, I'm in the middle of a fast because I'm so spiritual. <laughs> and it was just a game. There was nothing real about it. Jesus called them on it. 
Look at what fasting had already become in Isaiah's day. He says, on the day of your fast, verse 3, you find your desire. Fasting was self-indulgent. Self-indulgent. It's about what you want for you. That's why you're doing this thing. Secondly, fasting was self-advancing. He says, you drive hard all your workers. You fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. It was for self-indulgence. It was self-advancing. It was self-effacing. He says, is this what I want? A day for a man to humble himself? Do you think that I really... And listen, gang. God says, do you think that I really am looking for people to be just down on their knees going, I'm so bad. You know? This, this image of humility that in truth doesn't show what's really going on in the human heart. Self-indulgence, self-advancement, self-effacing. Do you hear the problem? Self, self, self. Your fasting is all about you. It's all about how you look. It's all about how it affects you. It's all about what fasting did for the faster or what church going does for the church goer or what worshiping does for the worshiper instead instead of being about God, about Jesus, about what matters to Him, what's important to Him. And you all know this. We've shared this in the barn before. We don't come in here to worship so we feel good. Ironically, we do feel better when we worship, but that's not why we're here. We don't walk in the bar and getting out of our cars in the morning going, boy, I hope the worship team's on today because I could really use a lift. It's not about you. It never has been about you. It is about the glory of God. Not the lifting up of man. That's called humanism. And that's not what we're about. He's really going after the veneer of spirituality, the false spirituality. I, I love the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You all know that. And I was watching The Two Towers the other day, the second in the, in the three films. And looking forward to the time I get to watch it again with Jim Daly, because I know how much he loves it. But I was watching this, and, and after watching The Two Towers, there, there's a scene in there, you see it, about half of the movie happens at this place called Helm's Deep. Helm's Deep, if you haven't seen the movie, it's this rock fortress with these massive stone walls that go all the way around the front of it. It's a very studly, cool, manly place, you know. And so we're going to stay and we're going to fight off all the orcs that are coming out in Helm's Deep. We're going to be safe in Helm's Deep. And I watched the making of. Do you know what the blocks, those massive stones in Helm's Deep, were really made of? Styrofoam. They're all styrofoam blocks painted to look like tough stone. Think about that next time you watch the two towers. And all the orcs are coming up. You're like, these guys are toast. It's just styrofoam walls. They're not going to be protected. Why is it that believers feel unprotected? Because the veneer of spirituality is styrofoam walls. There's no substance to it. If you're pretending Christianity, it's not going to do you a lick of good. It will not protect you against the enemy. It will not strengthen you in your relationships with the Lord. It's just styrofoam. And God's trying to drill this into the heart of the Jewish people. He's trying to get them to understand, look, I've sounded the alarm, I am shooting down appearances. Do not appear to be my people, be my people. It's so simple. And then he turns around and thirdly, he shines the light on actual righteousness. Sounds the alarm, shoots down appearances, shines the light on actual righteousness. Verse 6, he says, is this not the fast which I choose? 
to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry? By the way, if you're dividing your bread with someone, it means you're eating with them. God says, that's my kind of fast. And by the way, it's my kind of fast too. (laughs) If I can eat with them, I'll fast like that all day long. And bring the homeless poor into the house. And when you see the naked, to cover him. And not to hide yourself from your own flesh. I thought it interesting. Clark did this both hours. That at communion, he had you all look at each other. Look around. Go ahead and do it again. Look around. Look at who's sitting next to you. We all have the same kind of silly look. I don't want to be looked at. I didn't come to church to have people look at me. I didn't show up here. I mean, you know, what if I have like a booger or something? I don't want people looking at me. We got to look at each other because, gang, listen, when you look around this barn, you are looking at yourself. You are looking in the mirror. You are. That's why he says not to hide yourself from your own flesh. From your own flesh. Look around. This is your flesh. Look around in the world. This is our flesh. In other words, God would say, humanity is not just my concern, humanity is your concern. As human beings, do not hide from your own flesh. And we do it all the time. We hide from our flesh. We make distinctions. My neighbor gang is myself. That's why Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Because we are all connected to each other as human beings. And I'm not trying to get all new agey on you. It's just truth. Job said in Job 31.13, If I have despised the claim of my male or female slaves when they file a complaint against me, what then could I do when God arises? And when He calls me to my account, what will I answer Him? Did not He who made me in the womb make Him? And the same one fashioned us in the womb? Hey, guess what? If you have been born of the womb... You are the same as someone else who has been born of the womb. Do not hide from your own flesh. We're looking at ourselves. And yet we make distinctions. We say they don't go to my church. We say they aren't of my political persuasion. Well, they're too young. Well, they're too old. Well, they're too together. Well, they're too weird. Hey, you're looking in the mirror. You ever look in the mirror and go, you are just too weird. (laughs) I did that this morning. Remember Jesus. And think about this. As Isaiah is describing, God says, is it not to loosen the bonds of wickedness, undo the bands of the yoke, let the oppressed go free, divide your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into the house. When you see the naked, cover him. Does that sound familiar to you? Jesus described his neighbor this way. I was hungry. Matthew 25.35 And you gave me to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Jesus so identified with the lowliest of the low. And that is actual righteousness. That's legitimate righteousness. That's genuine living for Jesus. When we don't look at others differently, but we say, you know, all of us need the Lord. Saved and lost people need the Lord. We say people need Him to continue drawing us forward. Lost people need Him because they don't even have a clue that they're lost. We all need Jesus. 
And he identified with the lowliest of people. That's true religion. It's not genes. It's not a brand. True religion, James defines this way. He says, pure and undefiled religion, James 1.27, in the sight of our God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. You want to keep yourself unstained by the world? As we are in this valley heading toward the mountain, Mount Zion, the coming kingdom, you want to stay unstained? Here's how you do it. Loose, undo, set free, break the yoke, divide your bread, bring in the homeless, cover the naked, do not hide from your own flesh. And you will keep yourself unstained by the world. Because you will be loving the world the way God loved us. Keep going, verse 8. Then your light will break out like the dawn, and your recovery will speedily spring forth. Some translations say your healing will speedily spring forth. The word is arukah in the Hebrew, and it means your prolonging, a prolonged life. You could say your eternity will begin to spring forth as you live for the Lord. He says, Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and He will say, Here I am. When? When your concern is more for other people than it is for yourself. Then you begin to hear the Lord. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. Now again, God's addressing His people Israel, the people there in Judah, but the compassion of God for the thirsty and the hungry and the naked and the imprisoned of our world has not changed. He still cares. And i got to point this out, gang. Possibly more than anything else as a pastor. Unless I bet you can confirm this. What I hear from people is, I want to hear God. I want an experience with His Spirit. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with desiring to walk in that kind of intimate fellowship with God. Listen to what He says in the next verse. Those of you who really desire that. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. When? If you give yourself to the hungry, verse 10, and satisfy the desire of the the afflicted. When you're doing this, then note what happens. Then the Lord will continually guide you. He will satisfy your desire. What does this mean? Is this religious work I have to do? No. What he's talking about here is if we would stop our self-indulgent, self-advancing, even self-effacing form of religion, if we would stop looking inward to try and find this experience in ourselves and start looking outward the way Jesus did, then we would start to hear from God. We would start to feel more guided by the Lord. We would be filled with His Holy Spirit in a way that would stun us if our focus was outward and not so inward. How do you know this, Rick? Well, he said the continual guidance of God will be yours. The Lord will continually guide. That's an ongoing, I'm with you, I'm walking you through this, we're together in this, you and I. And he says that we would be springs of water that do not fail. God springs out of those who are aligned with His righteousness. Keeping track of these things, that's the fourth point. 
He springs out of it. Jesus said, John 4.14, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. It's a good idea. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. A wellspring, which means it is sustaining. It is not stopping. It's continual flow of His Spirit within you. I like the example of down here where the pond is right now. Rod told me years ago when he got out there and they was, it was just boggy, wet and boggy down there. And so originally I believe the intention was just to try and clear it out and clean it up. And he got out there with a tractor and began to dig in. And every time he lifted up, water just started pouring out. And he'd dig in and lift up, and more water poured out, and they realized there's an underwater spring there. So he just kept digging, and next thing you know, you got a deep pond out there. It's a natural pond, natural springs. And Jesus says, I want this for you. I want this for you. I want to guide you, and I want to be a wellspring of my spirit within you. But, but, it doesn't happen if you're trying to get it by looking inward. Jesus, come on, where are we? We gotta do this together. I gotta experience you. I want more of you. I, I, me, me, self, self, self. (laughs) Jesus says, you know what? If you turn your gaze outward to love people the way I do, there will be plenty of room for me to fill you up. But if you're all so full of yourself, I'm not going to share your heart. I want it all. So get your eyes off yourself. Paul says, Galatians 5.25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. What does that mean? If I live by the Spirit, I've given my life to Jesus, I know His Holy Spirit is with me. Then I walk by His Spirit. That is every day in my behavior, my actions. I'm doing what He does. I'm acting the way He acts. I'm behaving like Him. Verse 12. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations. He's talking to Judah. And this was, by the way, prophetically fulfilled by Judah. You will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. Isaiah prophesied this. This is going to happen. Then Judah was stormed by Babylon, wiped out, and went into captivity for 70 years. After 70 years, a guy named Zerubbabel, which is a great name if some of you pregnant moms. Cam, you need to think about Zerubbabel as a name. Zerubbabel and Joshua and Ezra and Nehemiah, these guys began to come back and lead people back to Judah. And guess what they did? They repaired the wall, the breaches in the wall around Jerusalem. They restored the ancient paths, the streets. And he says, you're going to be called by these two names. Gadar Peretz, repairer of the breach. And Shubnatib, restorer of the ruined paths. These will be your name, he says. And it literally was fulfilled, historically. But there's a beautiful picture here for us, gang. If you think about this world in which we live, in fact, think about where you've come from. How many of your own lives were breached and broken by sin? How many of you, when you look back at your life, see ruined paths? I went down some bad, dark alleys. I chose some wrong paths. Places where I was downtrodden. And yet Jesus comes along, and when we come to Jesus, He repairs the broken walls, and He restores the ruined paths, and He does it for two reasons. That we might be with Him, and then, listen, and then that we might become repairers of the breach and restorers of the ruined paths. That we, like Jesus, would begin to look around us and say, there are people here walking in this valley who are breached and broken. 
There are people here in this valley who don't even see Mount Zion coming, don't even see the kingdom coming, because they are so lost, wandering down ruined paths. And so the Spirit of Christ desires to fill us up like wellsprings, springs in the valley, springs in this age, so full of His goodness and mercy that we are now restorers, that we are repairers, just like Jesus. And that's the kind of fast He's looking for in us. The last two verses of the chapter, he turns to the second area. And this is very quick. Fasting and the Sabbath. He says, if because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and honor it desisting from your own ways and from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so he turns to Shabbat. And one old rabbi said, more than the Jews kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath kept the Jews. That it was the thing in the dispersion of over 1,800 years that kept the Jewish people Jewish was their observance of the Sabbath. But what was the purpose of the Sabbath? It was about rest. 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 And Talmud and the Jewish commentators and the old rabbis made Sabbath about work, work, work. Oh, no, it's not. No, we rest on that day. We, don't, we won't even push a button to go up and down an elevator on Sabbath because that would be work. We can only travel so far by foot because if we go any further, it becomes work. And you know what they did? They took this beautiful picture that God gave of resting in the Lord and turned it into religion and requirements. And they put it in the policy manual. We have a couple of policy manuals for the Bridge Fellowship. I hate policy manuals. I hate when people start saying, what does the manual say? Instead of saying, hey, what's the right thing to do here? And Sabbath became a policy. So Jesus comes along in Mark 2.27. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I love the, the humorous irony when Jesus says that. He had to have been saying it with a quizzical look on his face. <laughs> it was not made, man, you were not made to keep the Sabbath. That's not why God created you. I'm going to create a being so he can keep this day holy. No. It's the other way around. I created the Sabbath so that you would have rest and you would think about resting with me. And so the Son of Man, Jesus says, is Lord even of the Sabbath. What does that mean? It means He wants to be not only Lord of your work, but Lord of your rest. Huh? What is the connection of fasting and the Sabbath? Why these two things? Why does Isaiah, or the Lord better, through Isaiah, choose these two religious things to talk to Israel about. Because both of them, listen, both of them are expressions of not doing things. Fasting is about not eating. Sabbath is about not resting. Do you understand? He's saying here our walk with Jesus is not to be defined by religious do's, but it's also not to be defined by religious don'ts. It's not about just saying no. It's about just saying yes. Yes to Jesus, who is not only Lord of the Sabbath, He is the Sabbath. 
He is the rest. Hebrews 4.9, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered His rest has himself also rested from His works as God did from His. When did God rest from His works? On the seventh day of creation. That's the first part of the answer. When else did God rest from His work? When He said, It is finished. On the cross. Jesus had done everything. That's why the Hebrew writer later on says, He sat down having completed all the work. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The Hebrew writer says the priest was on his feet daily doing all the work, keeping the work up. You've got to keep the work going. You've got to keep the sacrifices continually going. You've got to continue to do this every day. And Jesus said it is finished. The work is done. No more temple sacrifice necessary. No more work. No more doing all these things. The work is done. So just say yes to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.19 says, The Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, was not yes and no. He was yes in Him. For as many as are the promises of God, in Jesus they are yes. Therefore also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Gang, we are called to be springs in the valley. Here between the great mountains, Mount Moriah behind us, where our sin was nailed to the cross. Where the law... Colossians chapter 2 tells us was also nailed to the cross. All the work was nailed to the cross when Jesus said, it's finished. It's not the doing of the thing anymore. It's resting in Jesus Christ. And here in the valley looming before us, Mount Zion is coming. It is close. It grows ever greater, ever stronger, ever brighter. And we are close to that time. And as we walk in this valley, we are called very simply to be springs. There's a lot of thirsty people in this world, aren't there? There's a lot of people that are so thirsty they're this close to dying eternally. And God says, would you be a spring in the valley? Until my kingdom comes, would you simply allow my spirit to work through you to be a spring for other people?